Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So welcome this evening, and we're right now <clears throat> going through the symbols. <clears throat> and the sim symbols are very, very important, as you will discover, uh, for us to understand um, the book of Revelation, but also for us to have really scriptural understanding of nature, as God intended it to be in the first place. The numbers, then we're going to look at the zodiac, nature, animals, colors, precious stones, and weapons. And these categories pretty much cover all the different types of symbols we will see in the book of Revelation, save uh, perhaps angels and men, which, which play a more special role and have excluded those. Um, last time we've looked at numbers very, very briefly. I have to say, by the way, this whole thing is work in progress, and we're just touching the tip, right? Um, if we were to really do a study of numbers in scripture, uh, we would probably spend four or five lectures, and that's almost true of almost everything we're doing, uh, which is uh, frustrating, I have to say, but at the same time, we do want to get to the book of Revelation, and if we don't, uh, kind of contract our studies of all these things, we will never get there. So, be it as it may, let's very quickly remember what we said last time. Um, the, the symbols we've looked at, the numbers we've looked at were from 1 through 10, 1 being first, but also meaning the head. Uh, and we said last time that if you look at, for instance, uh, the beginning of Scripture, in the beginning, that can also be taken to mean in the head. So when, for instance, John says, in the beginning was the word, he doesn't only mean in the beginning, he also means in the first. He actually means both. First and beginning. And oftentimes, words have that kind of double connotation. The second is number two. Two always references unity, well always, I have to be careful. Um, as with everything else, you may have a, a general sense to a specific symbol, but there are instances where it appears in either opposite meaning or a different meaning. So we have to keep a loose hand over our understanding of those things, but by and large, too, um, refers to unity, agreement, accord. So, uh, for instance, if uh, in Matthew, Jesus tells his apostles that if... Um, 
if you need to go to a case of, to, to if, if someone has done something wrong and he's not listening to you, you must have two views so that two would be witnesses. And in the in a Jewish court, you had to have two witnesses to agree. So two was always a reference of agreement. Um, the number three signifies God's purpose and will. And here I am not taking three in its, if you will, anagogical sense, that is a sense attributing to the Trinity, which it also applies. But by and large in the Old Testament, when three appears, the immediate sense is God's purpose. And why, why is that? Because of, well, in part because of the Hebraic language itself, where the superlative requires you to repeat something three times. And if you want to say best, we go good, good, good is better, and good, good, good is best. And that's why we say holy, holy, holy. Just to mean God is the holiest. And that's why three indicates God's purpose and will, confirmed. Um, that's why, for instance, in Exodus chapter 10, verse 22, we speak of the three days of darkness. Three meaning that it is going to happen. There will be darkness coming down. Um, that's why Christ died and was buried for three days to indicate his actual physical death. That this did indeed happen according to God's will. And so on and so forth. Four represents the earth, the land, the nations, the Gentiles. Uh, we speak of the four corners of the earth, the four winds, because the earth is an altar of sacrifice. And that's why it has four corners. Not because the earth is flat. The modern myth that ancient folks thought that the earth was flat is just that, a fabricated myth. Many of them who actually did not live on a flat surface did not think the earth was flat. Uh, many who did, like the Greeks, thought that it was flat, that's what they had, but they did not ascribe to it any ontological meaning that, oh, if it wasn't flat, we're going to die. That's a, that's a modern fabrication. Um, six is signifies work and by extension the material word. Why? Because on the sixth day is when God completed his work. On the sixth day is when man was created. And it really signifies also the the um, um, all that we can do materially. And so for instance when you start combining things, when you combine numbers as in six and three of them 666, what would you get? You get materialism taken to its absolute extreme. Right? So in that sense, even though the devil is not a physical being, he's not spiritual. In a sense that we would understand someone being spiritual. He's rather very, very, very material. Okay? Seven is the covenant, and you've heard me talk enough about seven, I'm not going to go over this again. Eight is... Um, the, the, really the new covenant right? because on the eighth day is when Christ rose the eighth day becomes the new day etc. Significantly eight does not appear in Revelation and we will come back to that and, we'll, and, and that is one of the clues we're going to use to really focus Revelation in the historical context not, no, nowhere in Revelation you will see the number eight appearing Ten and its multiples means fullness of what is in view. Not completeness, fullness. So for instance, when the woman lost her coin, she had ten, she lost one. When she got it, she got back ten. She got back fully what she had before. 
right? You're fully restored. So, for instance, if you bought a, a new van and the van got stolen from you after a year of use, and the insurance company agrees to pay you the van in full, you got back 10, right? And so now, well, once you have those numbers in place, you can start combining them and you can start seeing why, how, how the combination of those numbers play out and what they mean. So in 144,000, those who are marked, we know that 144,000 is 12 times 12,000. Oh yeah, 12, forgot 12, can't forget 12. 12, of course, is Israel, right? the 12 tribes of Judah. It's also the zodiac. Kind of interesting, we'll get into that in a minute. But 12 times 12,000 is 144,000. What is 12,000? Well, it's 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. Right? And so those who are marked are from the, all the tribes of Israel. And that indication that therefore tells you that every single tribe, all those who believe in every single tribe were actually marked. No one was lost. Everyone was accounted for. That's how you understand the meaning of that spe special number. You don't understand it to mean literally 12,000, exactly 12,000, because that makes no sense, okay? Because John is having a vision when he sees the 144,000, and if it was indeed 144,000, you're going to have to ask yourself a very simple question, how do you figure that out, right? I mean, did he tell God, okay, Lord, put that on pause, I need to count? How do you figure out exactly that there were that many? And was it really important? No, it's not. What is really important is to understand that every single one who believed was not lost. And why is that important? Because this is what the Lord tell, tells us elsewhere. I am the shepherd, these are my sheep, and all my sheep hear my voices, and not one of them will be lost. Right? So we have to have a proper contextual understanding of symbols, otherwise we will get the text to say whatever we feel the text should be saying. All right, let's move on. And again, I repeat to you, I just scratched the surface with numbers. Numbers are all over scripture, and they play very important roles, especially in the genealogies and the ages and the number of kings, on and on and on and on. Hopefully, this will whet your appetite for you to start looking for these numbers on your own when you read scripture. Let's move on to the zodiac. Um, the zodiac plays a very, very important role in the book of Revelation. Uh, and in order for us to understand this, we need to refocus what we mean by the zodiac. Typically, when we say the zodiac, we immediately mean astrology, right? We say zodiac, people hear astrology. Oh, let me go check my sign and see what's up for me next month. I'm going to win the lottery or something. But that is a deformation of the zodiac. Fundamentally, the zodiac is a set of constellations in the heavens. More specifically, it's a set of constellations that appear in the ecliptic. What's the ecliptic? Well, the ecliptic plane is that plane, if you will, in space, that, uh, on which, which captures the rotation of the Earth around the Sun. That's called the ecliptic plane. So if you look at the Earth, and if you think about putting a sheet of paper through the equator, right, you get the plane through which the Earth rotate, uh, um, cycles around the Sun. Right? It so happens to be the same plane for almost all the planets except Pluto, but some of you may be aware of the controversy around Pluto these days. We're not completely sure anymore that it's a planet. 
Pluto has a whack, wacky um, cycle around the sun. So that's the ecliptic plane. Now there is something called also the, 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 the universal sphere or the cosmic sphere, which is essentially an extension of the Earth. Think of the Earth, put a big sphere around it with two axes, one going through the, the equator, another one going through the north and south pole. Right? That's a nice geometric model for understanding our relationship to stars when you have really large distances and you don't really care how far things are. That's called the cosmic sphere. You take the intersection of these two and you get the ecliptic. Another way to look at it, if you were to trace the movement of the sun, that the sun makes in, this, in the sky throughout one year, you'll get a, a, you'll get a slice of the heavens. That slice is the ecliptic. And in that slice, you have a bunch of constellations. And those constellations form the zodiac. That is the zodiac. Now, the fact that some folks out there decided to ascribe mystical meaning to those stars is no different than folks taking scripture and running with it in an off-kilter manner. I told you that we have about 33,000 uh, Protestant denomination, that was about two years, I don't know what the count is today. And one of my favorite is one that is up in, uh, somewhere in New York State, and those guys when they go to the Sunday liturgy, they walk in naked. Because the church is heaven on earth, and in Eden, Adam and Eve were naked. Everybody's naked. So you can make scripture say whatever you feel like. No wonder some people take the stars and decide that the stars have influence in our lives and depending on the constellation, we will end up winning the lottery or not. Okay? That is completely separate from the zodiac, the, those constellations being in heaven. Now, essentially, there are different ways in which you can count those constellations. There are 24 major constellations and about 24 minor constellations. And those constellations are the Aquarius, Aries, Origa, Cancer, Canis Minor, Capricornus, Cetus, Corvus, Crater, Gemini, Hydra, Leo, Libra, Ophiuchus, Orion, Pegasus, this one I don't know how to pronounce, Pisce or Pisce, I don't know. I, know, I knew I was not getting this one right. Pisces. I don't like people with accent, by the way. Sagittarius, Scorpius, Scutum, Serpents, Sextants, Taurus, and Virgo. Those are the 24 major uh, constellations. And I'm assuming right now that we're going, you know, plus or minus 8 degrees on the ecliptic. You can go plus or minus 12 degrees and you get more. So there is a matter of controversy over what is exactly the zodiac. What I'm going to do tonight for you is give you one look at the zodiac which is biblical. Right, there's this guy out there who did it, and I picked it from him. It's really interesting. And his take is that the zodiac is recalling, retelling salvation history. That's why the zodiac is in the heavens. So he starts with Virgo. What is Virgo? It's a sign of the Virgin, right? It's a sign of the Virgin. Now before I go into this, I'm going to tell you something really fascinating. You know that in the book of Revelation chapter 12, you may not know that, but you will now, St. John says, and a great sign, a great portent appears in the heavens. A woman 
clothed with the sun, the moon, under her feet, twelve stars. Right? Whereas this, there's this guy who essentially took that literally. He said, alright, we're talking about the zodiac. Guess what? There is a time in the year where the sun goes through Virgo. Meaning if you were to take a picture, you'd see the constellation Virgo and the sun going from the head towards the legs. Okay? And there is a time in the year where the moon, the full moon, is right under Virgo. Right under. You take a picture, you get the constellation Virgo, you get the sun right in the middle, and the moon right under. And he calculated that day back to 4 BC. It's one day in a year that this happens. One day. You ready? September 11. I don't know if this is true or not, but it's interesting. What is really interesting is the thought process he went through to take scripture and not exclude the cosmos and include it. Alright? This is what this other guy does. Starts with Virgo, the virgin. And so, of course, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child. In different languages, that Virgo means also desired. Woman feed baby boy. So in Haggai, verse, chapter 2, verse 7, desired of all nations shall come. Then you go through coma. So Vir Virgo has three minor, which is coma, centaurus, and boots. And so the next one is coma, and it's desired, woman feed baby boy. The third one is centaurus, and you get the despised. It means the despised, or sin offering, depending on which language you look into. And then you have Isaiah chapter 53. And then Boots, where you have the coming of the one who rules. Psalm 96, verse 13. So essentially what he's doing is looking at this first set of constellation, and he sees in it the birth of Christ. Now this is not fanciful, because the Psalms tell us that the heavens speak of the glory of God. Now that's, that doesn't, we don't take that figuratively, we take that literally. That the heavens speak of the glory of God. Then, the second set include Libra, Crux, Lupus, and Corona. And here you have Libra being weighing, purchase, co-propriation. That's of course Christ taking on our sins. Crux is the cross. Right? Lupus is the victim, the one who is to be slain. And Corona is the royal crown. So here, we see four constellations that speaks of his death and resurrection. His suffering, his death and resurrection. Scorpio is the conflict. And then the serpent gets us back to Genesis, where the serpent will bruise his head and Psalm 91, where we will tread on the adder. Ophicius is the serpent holder, and Hercules is the mighty one. Again, those are together, and here you see the conflict of the Lord with the evil one. Sagittarius is the archer, 
Now the archer is important because we'll see that later the arch, the bow, and the arrows are always used in connotation to God's glory, God's power, God's might. We'll see that later, how these play. And of course, it is the one who is to triumph. Lyra is the harp, and we give, we give God's glory on the lyre as David did. And Era is the burning pyre, and fire shall devour them, and Draco is the dragon, which will be trodden out and will be slain. Okay? And then so on and so forth, I'm not going to go through all of them because I don't have time, but my point to you, and I can provide you with the whole list, my point to you is here's someone, and this is what we should be doing, and this is how the ancients looked at the heavens. That is a very theological view of the world. It doesn't look at the stars as just a bunch of, you know, massive, big balls of fire sitting out there randomly. It looks at the stars as God's first book. It looks at the whole universe as God's first book, written to teach us about His love. Alright? Why are those important? Because in the book of Revelation, in the book of Ezekiel, in the very first book of, uh, um, in the second chapter of Revelation, is Lilian here? So why are those, all these things are important? Well, because of the fact that in the, in the second book of Revelation, you have the following. I mean, the fourth chapter. And around the throne, so you look at verse 7, around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures. Right? The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. Back then, Scorpio was also looked at as an eagle, not as a scorpion. Right? So you have four constellations, thank you, four constellations being represented here. So one of the senses of these creatures with animal faces and a bunch of wheels turning around them are that all of the cosmos is standing before God. This first vision is sometimes called the creation vision where you have 24 elders representing the 24 constellation. Now I don't think, I do not think that this is all that they represent. I think the elders mean that. Yeah. But I don't think this is all that is behind it. Alright? But if you don't have that understanding of the views of the ancients on the constellations, you will miss that very important point. God is the creator of all. God is the master of all, and everything renders in glory. Alright? So as I said, there's, there, there, are, there are these constellations, there's a bunch of them, I'm not going to go through all of them because we won't be able to cover everything we have to cover. But I hope I, again, gave you some idea about what those mean. And hopefully, you're starting to think this way across everything. Not just constellation. Every, every living thing, every inanimate thing in this world is a sign that God is giving you about His love. God speaks to us in many ways, in manifold ways about His love. First, through the physical word. Second, to the people we meet. Third, in our heart. Okay? 
we have to look at the world sacramentally, not just materially, because then we miss the boat. So now let's move on and talk about nature. Now, by nature, I mean certain physical elements. I'm going to cover some of them. I'm going to exclude some. I'm not going to talk about the sun, the moon, the stars, and, um, and the cloud, because I'm going to talk about those when we, when we go through the prophets, or else I won't be done. I'm going to hit on other elements which we see, and these are all elements present in the book of Revelation in one way or the other. The first is rain. <clears throat> What's the purpose of rain? Yeah, physically, the purpose of rain is to bring life. But then what is the sacramental meaning of rain? Because it has one. Just as the stars have a meaning. The sacramental meaning of rain is fruitfulness. Okay? That we are fruitful only when we cooperate with God. God is the source of all fruitfulness. Okay? So, Psalm 65 verse 12. You adorn the year with your bounty, your paths drip with fruitful rain. Psalm 68.11 Your people said it there, there you poured abundant rains, God graciously given to the poor in their need. So the rain brings life, but it is also a symbol, a sacrament, an indication of God's fruitfulness. Rain is therefore a symbol of grace. And when we look at rain, when we see the rain coming down, it should remind us, it should lift our hearts up to think about how God is pouring His grace on us. You understand? That's how you start, you begin, you look at the world around you, not just as a sequence of physical elements, but as God speaking to you. Drought, of course, is the opposite. Sterility. Death, distress. Book of Sirach, verse 35, ver, uh, chapter 35, verse 24. Welcome is his mercy in time of distress, as rain clouds in time of drought. So you see that mercy is connected with rain, and distress is connected with drought. And so when God wants to speak to us about our inter interior state, he sends drought. Alright? So when you start looking at the world around you covenantally, you start to see the events around you in a covenantal way, you begin, or you become, or you continue to become truly children of God. The covenant, the four senses of scripture, the symbols need to all converge to help you understand how God is speaking to you. The drought is also covenantal judgment. The book of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 11. And I called for drought upon the land and upon the mountains, upon the grain and upon the wine and upon the oil and upon, and upon all that the ground brings forth, upon men and upon beasts, and upon all that is produced by hand. So the calling of a drought by the prophet Haggai is a covenantal curse. Why does God do that? Because you see we're blind. Let me put it to you differently. Let's say you have a wart on your face. And your friend has a wart on his face. Which of the two warts is easier for you to see? Bingo. Let's say 
your soul is sterile. And there hasn't been rain in a year. Which of the two is easier to see? The rain, right? The lack of it, right? That is why it is so important for us to be very mindful about our complaining. Especially when the complaining is about something exterior to us. Because we're missing God's grace. When something happens outside of us that is annoying us, it is annoying us more often than not because of a wart on our soul that we're not seeing. And God is giving us a grace to see it. That's how He speaks. Well, what's God? He's not talking to me. He's talking all the time. I'm not listening. That's the problem. <clears throat> Earthquake. Earthquake is by, in general, in general, earthquake is associated with covenantal judgment. So, Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 6. You shall be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder, earthquake, great noise, whirlwind, storm, and the flame of consuming fire. All these things God sends our way to wake us up, to call us back. To get us to realize what's going on. Okay? Thunder. Thunder is one of those symbols which has multiple meaning. And here, here is, for instance, an example. We have to be very careful about properly interpreting it. So, one meaning ascribed to thunder is God's glory. The glory of God. Psalm 29, verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the, the God of glory thunders, the Lord over the mighty waters. The God of glory thunders. So thunder is here to remind us of God's glory. I remember when I was a kid in Lebanon. Now Lebanon, most of you, most of you who have never been there don't know that. Lebanon is a country very rich in water. And the winters in Lebanon are raining and when it starts raining it will rain for a week on end non-stop when it rains it rains it pours and it thunders I still remember sitting in my room playing a game and something was not going my way and right there and then I said because it wasn't going my way I said a bad word and right after I said that bad word I heard the most frightful thunder in my life I mean, it got everybody jolting. Everybody jumped. It was incredible. It stuck with me. I do admit I looked up. I knew none of that stuff. But it sure sounded like somebody was talking to me. Well, maybe yelling would be most appropriate. But, right? but that's what one of the purposes of thunder God's voice also is represented by thunder. Psalm 46, verse 7. Though nations rage and kingdoms totter, God's voice thunders and the earth trembles. Thunder is also God's punishment. Wisdom. Chapter 19, verse, verse 13. And the punishments came upon the sinners only after forewarnings from the violence of the thunderbolts. For the justly suffered for their own misdeeds, since indeed they, they treated their guests with the most more grievous hatred. 
So God's punishment also is forewarned in thunder. However, thunder can also indicate wickedness. As is the case in Sirach chapter 40 verse 13. Wealth out of wickedness is like, a, is like a wadi in spate, like a mighty stream with lightning and thunder. And if you start thinking about it, it kind of makes sense that most symbols will have multi multiple meanings. And you can use them in different ways. Right? Why? Because of the fact that our relationship to these natural elements sometimes can be good and sometimes cannot be good. And therefore, God will use that to teach us about what goes on around us, beyond what we can simply see. Hail. Hail is covenantal judgment. Most of the time, and especially in the book of Revelation, that's how it appears. Right? A ju covenantal judgment. Psalm 78, verse 47-49. He killed their vines, he in this case being God, killed their vines with hail, their sycamores with frost. He exposed their flocks to deadly hail, their cattle to lightning. He unleashed against them his fiery breath, roar, fury, and distress, storming messengers of death. That's what typically hail is, is, is all about. Wind, I'm not going to go there because there's no end to it. Alright, it's, it's huge. But you know that wind represents the spirit. Wind represents also God's breath. Wind represents um, God's power when he uses the wind or when he was hold the wind. Wind is what moves ships on, on, on the sea. A very rich symbolism. I didn't have time to cover it. We'll come back to it. The breeze, on the other hand, is God's presence. 1 Kings 19, 11-12. That's the beautiful passage where... Elijah is trying to see where God is and then the Lord said go outside and stand on the mountain before the Lord the Lord will be passing by a strong and heavy wind was rending the mountains and crushing rocks before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind after the wind there was an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake there was fire but the Lord was not in the fire after the fire there was a tiny whispering sound a breeze and God was in the breeze and here a very important lesson for all of us. God speaks in silence. You need silence to hear God. Alright? You can't hear God with noise. The two don't work together. You have to be silent. So, moments of prayer, moments of personal prayer where you're alone, you turn off the light, you turn off your TV, the cell phone, the music, and everything else. And in the quiet of the night or early morning, you're sitting in silence. That is when you hear God's voice. That's when God speaks. The cloud is another one of those very important symbols. By and large, the cloud means the Holy Spirit. It represents the Holy Spirit. Okay? Sun, moon, and star will cover later. Fire is purification and covenantal judgment. God will send fire to purify and God will punish through fire. Of course, the most extreme case of punishment is the fire of hell. Right? Where, where fire is used as a symbol of the pain incurred in hell. 
Now, one thing you ought to start doing and train yourself to, because it's going to help you tremendously when you hit the book of Revelation, is to start seeing the world this way. Because this is how the early Christians and the Jews saw the world. As a constant conversation with God. As events occurred, God is speaking. God is saying some, something and they listened. So they were used to very rich symbolism. Because they understood that all of this life and all of this universe and everything that is happening to us are signs and symbols and sacraments of God's presence in our life. We lost that. We live in a materialistic word. A word that pits science against faith, which is a contradiction in terms. Right? A word where we think that we need to rely more on facts, on things we can touch and smell and see, than on faith. And that is, again, a contradiction in terms. Why? Because not one of us present here today can prove to me that in the next 10 minutes the benches you're sitting on are not going to break. How many of you before you start your car in the morning go through the whole process of physically proving that the car will work? How many of you when you pick up the phone go through the process of proving that you can use it? We function by faith more than by any other faculty. We're doing good. Colors. Colors in Scripture. If you notice in, uh, um, for instance, uh, vestments, um, the, the, the vestments of a priest have different colors, right? And colors mean something. You should be at least familiar with some of those. Red is the color of the martyr, right? Blue is the color of the Blessed Virgin. Um, white is the color of purity. Um, and so on and so forth. So in Scripture, there's a number of colors which are really important. Green, green is one of the canonical colors in, in, in the liturgy for use on Sundays. It represents what? Hope, right? Hope, joy, uh, promises of youth. However, green also represents death. Right? So the four horses of the apocalypse, the fourth horse, when they say it's a pale horse, St. John never said it was a pale horse. He said it was a green horse. Problem is, they're really rare. They're very difficult to find. A green horse, that is. So translators kind of puzzled, and they decide to move on to a pale horse. Have you seen a pale horse? What is a pale horse? Is it a horse that is, that is kind of white? Or is it a white horse that is pale because he's afraid? Do horses beat are pale when they're afraid? I mean, if you really think about when they wrote that, you kind of really wonder. They didn't make it any easier for us. But because we often turn off our thinking process when we read scripture, they can get away with it. Oh, pale horse, ooh. What is a pale horse? I think they would have, they would have had a, a harder problem if it was donkeys instead of horses. <laughs> and the fourth one was a pale donkey. But with a horse they can get away with. Because, why? Because of the symbolism of a horse. That's why. Alright, colors. Blue. Blue and sky blue. 
emblem of celestial region, celestial virtues. It is associated with the Virgin. The saints, the angels are often also depicted in the robes. Because it, it, it indicates they are, they are in heaven. Right? That's why we give the color blue. Um, red is the color used in ceremonies concerning, concerned with Pentecost, a religious feast, and also martyrdom. Dull yellow or tan, color which is associated with treachery and envy. So for instance, if you look at this, the, the Last Supper in color, you'll see that Judas is often dressed in yellow or tan. Thank you, treachery. Orange and golden yellow is emblematic of God's goodness and of faith and good works. The color of the sun, for instance, right, life. Violet is a color canonical which is appropriate for use during Lent on Advent Sunday and um, it indicates uh, purification. Right? And also violet is a color of, which is associated with purple. Those two colors are royal colors, the colors of the house of David. Okay. White of course symbolizes purity, um, the virgin, the saints, the angels, innocence, faith, light, life. Uh, it is the color for Easter and for Christmas. Black is a canonical color that symbolizes death. Okay, mourning, sorrow, uh, only appropriate in church on Good Friday when it symbolizes the sorrow and despair of the Christian, well not despair, the sorrow of the Christian community at Christ's death. There are though some other connotations like uh, of colors that I'd like to speak of. So for instance, um, black has an, ex has an expanded meaning of judgment. So for instance, when God is about to judge Nineveh, they dress in black and they put sackcloth and sit down and put dust on their heads, etc. Right? So it's associated with judgment. Um, blue, blue also is associated, interestingly enough, with corruption. So you can see it in Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 8 and 9 and Ezekiel chapter 23 verse 3 through 8. And it kind of makes sense because blue was also a royal color and oftentimes royalty was associated with corruption. So hence blue came to be also associated with that, with that uh, state. Gray is associated with uh, old age for obvious reasons. Um, it's also associated with uh, repentance and mourning. As I said, green ha is also associated with disease. You can find that in Leviticus 13 verse 49 and, 13, and 14 verse 37. Purple, we said, is associated with royalty uh, and also in mockery, right? But there's, oh, there's one in specific instance that you should be able to recall to mind where purple is associated with royalty and mockery. When? Yeah, but when, when, who did that to him? Herod. Herod gave him that purple. Right? And he's the one who called him the king. And the guards, of course, played off that as well. Alright. We talked about red. Uh, by the way, red is also associated with uh, war, with vengeance.
shedding of the blood, right? It has that obvious meaning as well. There are other colors which I'm going to skip right now, otherwise, again, we won't be able to complete this. The next set we're going to go through are the precious stones. Why are the precious stones important? Because they appear more than once in Revelation. So for instance, if we look at the book of Revelation 21, for instance, chapter 21 verse 19, he's talking about the New Jerusalem. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every jewel, jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, uh, chrysoprase, jacinth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold, transparent as glass. How many precious stones? Twelve. Twelve. The number 12. What is the number 12? Israel. Alright. Where do we find 12 precious stones? For the first time. When God instructs Moses on the dress code for the high priest. What is the high priest supposed to have on his breastplate? 12 precious stones. Okay. Now, when we get to the book of Revelation, we're going to compare the order that John chooses of those stones versus the order that were on the, the breastplate of the high priest, and we'll see some interesting variations. That, of course, for the most part, goes over our heads, because we don't stop to really look at that. And that is one indication, for instance, that John was very intimately familiar with the liturgy of the temple in Jerusalem. Because he is not following the order precisely. He's switching in specific places. He doesn't know it once. He does it two or three times. Okay? So that's why it's important for us to have some understanding of those, of those um, precious stones. First, I'd like to let you know that the apostles have actually uh, precious stones associated with them. The jasper, which is the emerald, which is like the emerald, but is of a greenish hue, is associated with St. Peter. The sapphire is likened to the heavens and signifies St. Paul. The chalcedony may well have been considered what we now call carbuncle and represents St. Andrew. The emerald, which is a green color, signifies St. John the Evangelist. The sardonyx, which shows a certain transparency and purity of the human male, represents St. James. The sardius represents St. Philip. The chrysolite, gleaming with the splendor of gold, symbolizes St. Bartholomew. The beryl, Imitating the colors of the sea and air, and not unlike the jacinth, suggests St. Thomas. The topaz, which is a veruti color, denotes St. Matthew. The chrysoprase, more brightly tinged with a gold hue, symbolizes St. Thaddeus. The jacinth signifies St. Simon. The amethyst, which has a fiery aspect, is also associated with St. Matthew. Now, <clears throat> Don't ask me why. I don't know why. I haven't figured this one out. I don't, this is work in progress. I don't claim, I'm, I'm telling you, we're only touching the tip of this whole thing. 
All right. So I don't claim that I have a complete mastery of 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 why this is so. Now, in Exodus chapter twenty-four, verse ten. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. So, we will see also in the book of Revelation, precious stones play a big role in the, the throne, and everything else. If you keep that um, list that I gave you, for instance, sapphire under his feet, and thinking of St. Peter as being the rock on which the church is built, you start understanding why these associations have happened. But I don't have that um, clarity yet. Also, <clears throat> oh yeah, here we go. In uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 39, verse 6 to 14. And they wrought onyx stones enclosed in, in couches of gold, graven as signets are graven with the name of the children of Israel. And he made a breastplate, and they set in, in four rows of stones. The first row was a sardius, topaz, carbuncle. The second row, emerald, sapphire, diamond. The third row, ligur, agate, and amethyst. The fourth row, beryl, onyx, and jasper. And the stones were according to the names of the children of Israel. Twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, every one with his name according to the twelve tribes. So every tribe is associated with a precious stone and is associated also with the sign of the zodiac. Alright? So you got all this connection going on here which typically we are not aware of. Okay? But they all converge in the book of Revelation because they all play a big role. I mean, it, it, I can't imagine someone sitting and writing down the book of Revelation on his own. The more I study it, the more I cannot imagine that. There's so much going on that it must have been a vision given to someone who has in his mind the background necessary to understand what's going on. The more you study it, the more you see it's too much. You're going to have, you know, six or seven brains and maybe, you know, 12 or 13 network computers to help in this process. This is beyond what one, one person can hold in their hand when, they, when you see all the connections, you start to see all the connection across the board you're really dazzled um, Job chapter um, 28 verse 16, 18 and 19 it cannot be valued with the precious onyx of the sapphire no mention shall be made of coral or of pearls for the price of wisdom is above rubies the topaz of Ethiopia shall not equal it neither shall it be valued with pure gold so here, wisdom is compared to precious stones. And on and on and on. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and on and on and on. But if you start associating the precious stones with Israel, you have a different meaning. You have another layer of meaning that comes to mind when you read comparison made to precious stones. And we will go back and pick at those suggestions as we hit the book of Revelation precisely and we'll, we'll look at again what does this precious stone mean and why is it here and not there uh, let's look at, this, at the weapons now briefly the sword the sword is a symbol of God's punishment so Genesis chapter 3 verse 24 
When he expelled the man, he settled him east of the Garden of Eden, and he stationed the cherubim and the fiery, fiery revolving sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Also in Exodus chapter 5, verse 3, they replied, The God of the heavens has sent us word, let us go a three days journey in the desert that we may offer sacrifice to the Lord our God. This is Moses and Aaron explaining to Pharaoh why they need to go away. He said, that's what God told us. And they add, otherwise he will punish us with pestilence and with the sword. Alright, so the sword is associated with God's punishment. But it's also associated with God's enemies. And that should not surprise us, because after all, the sword is the instrument of, of uh, conquest, of war. So in Psalm 22, verse 21, Deliver me from the sword, my fallen life from the teeth of the dog. Psalm, verse 37, verse, uh, Psalm 37, verse 14, The wicked draw their swords, their string, their bo- they string their, their bows, to fell the poor and oppressed, to slaughter those whose way is honest. The bow is, is a covenantal sign. How do we know that? What did God say to, to um, Noah after the flood? What is, he, what is he going to give him as a sign of the covenant? The rain what? Rain bow. Why does he give him the rainbow as a sign? So think about that for a second. Again, we, we're, we're always, we, we put ourselves in automatic, on autopilot, and we don't even stop to think about this. Why does he give him the rainbow as a sign? Hope, maybe. Yes? The rain is fruitfulness. What about the rainbow? Okay, it's simpler than that. It's what? It's a bow. Right? Okay. What is God doing with the bow? He's putting it where? In the heavens, right? Okay. When a man takes his bow and hangs it. Thank you. That's it. We're complicated. When a man takes his bow and hangs it, what is he saying? Peace. Right? peace. I'm not going to war. That's my sign that I have hung my, my bow in the heavens associated with rain, which is a sign of fruitfulness. Good, good. The, 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 the thing is, how do we know that it was really used as a weapon? The songs are all over. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. The, the bow and especially the arrows. Well, you can't have arrows without a bow, right? They imply that, and we'll see how arrows are used to represent God's judgment, God's punishment. Arrows are very, very rich in symbolism. Just give me one minute before we get there. Yeah, here we go. Chapter 6. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, as with a voice of thunder, Huh. Okay. Alright. Come, and I saw, and behold, a white horse, white horse, and his rider had a bow. Alright? He had a bow. Question. Where did he get the bow from? Well, a little bit earlier, we see, in verse in chapter 4, 
At once I was in the spirit, and lo, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there appeared like Jasper, Carnelian, precious stones, right? Okay, keep those in mind. And round the altar, now around the throne, was a rainbow. That's the rainbow. You got it? And here is a man on the white horse who has a bow. You see the connection? God has unstrung his bow. Judgment is about to follow. You connect the dots, you understand what's going on covenantally, the symbolism makes sense. You don't, you go on fanciful tangents, talking about references to some historical group who at the time were trying to, were plotting to overthrow Rome. And that's the explanation you have of that guy. And I'm not making that up. Leading Catholic theologians are proposing that type of explanation. Not once mentioning the word covenant. Okay? You, put, you pick a book on theology, you pick a book that, that is presenting you with a meaning of something in scripture, flip through it. Look at the index. If they don't use the word covenant nowhere, Put it back. It's not worth your money. So, that's the bow. Um, arrows are used as punishment. And there are so many examples, I'm just going to give you two. Psalm 7, verse 14. God prepares his deadly shafts, makes arrows blazing thunderbolts. Psalm 64, verse 4. They sharpen their tongues like swords, ready their, their bows for arrows of poison words. In this case, arrows are representing poison. And um, arrows appear at least 17 times in, in the Psalms alone. Right? So when we see things coming down from heaven, when we see the bow being unstrung, we see it in a context and we understand that God is about to effect covenantal judgment. Okay? Now we have one more category to go through. I don't know if we're going to be able to make it through or not. How are you making right now? This is not easy, I know. I mean, this is maybe a little bit boring going through all these symbols, but um, I don't know how else we can cover it. Um, the animals. I skipped over the animals. And all, boy, are they important. Okay, I'm just going to look at a, a small bunch of animals, because otherwise we will be, well, maybe not that small. All right, I'll just cover it briefly, and we'll see if we can continue next time. Uh, the ant, even though the ant doesn't appear in the book of Revelation, I thought that was cute. Um, wisdom, diligence. Proverb, chapter 6, verse 8. Go to the ant, O sluggard, study her ways and learn wisdom. What is a sluggard? These days we call that a teenager. Okay? That's what a sluggard is. Somebody doesn't want to do anything, right? A bum. Right? Go to the ant. Learn, study her ways and learn wisdom. That is again another way in which God speaks to us. We observe an ant. It's actually really interesting observing an ant. I'll tell another story of my childhood. When I was a kid, I would, we would be playing in the forests of Lebanon. One of my favorite games, but it would take me forever, is to scout the forest looking for black ants. Once I found those, try to find another mold of red ants. Not too far. All right, not too far. Then, work for about two weeks 
to kind of coerce the red ants and the black ants <laughs> to the point where they're going to meet. Why? Because as, as soon as a black ant meets a red ant, before you can blink your eye, one is chopped in half. <coughs> oh yeah, they cannot. It's worse than water and sulfur. It's amazing. You've never seen war to the death until you've seen black ants fighting with red ants. It's absolutely incredible. Why, well, it was fascinating. You know, I worked with it for about a month and I enjoyed it for five minutes. Go figure, boys. No, no, both of them would be very peaceful until the two antennas would touch. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I mean, I'm telling you, it's incredible. All right, the donkey, the ass. Um, well, again, it's a complex image. Meekness, patience, Numbers, chapter 22, verse 30. I'm not going to read it right now, I'm just going to give you a list. But it's also conquest, determination. Um, this is how, for instance, um, uh, Ishmael is described. He shall be a wild ass of a man, and he will conquer by the power of his bow. Uh, the blessing of Judah, it's associated with that. He tethers his donkey to the vine, his purebred ass to the choice stem. In wine he washes his garments, his robe, in the blood of grapes. And oh boy, did the fathers use that as an anagogical meaning to see Christ sitting on a donkey, dying in his blood, and then redeeming us. Uh, stubbornness, rebellion, of course. And, um, and so that is the major theme of a donkey. He's a stubborn, he's rebellious, and he's associated with humans. The bear. The bear is associated with maternal love. So for instance, I will attack them like a bear robbed of its young and tear their hearts from their breasts. Well, that other part is not, but the first part is. <laughs> because... It is true that in nature, um, uh, the maternal love of a mother bear is very strong, extremely strong. And you don't want to be between the cubs and mama bear. You really don't want to be, unless you enjoy being minced meat. All right? It's also associated with might, anger, and power. Why is that important? Because in the composite images we'll see in Ezekiel, in Daniel, in Revelation, part of it is a bear. Okay? The dog. The dog is associated with one thing only, uncleanliness. Uncleanliness. Alright? So for instance, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, when he says, and the dog would come and lick his wounds, Christ was not trying to be cute here, in saying that, oh well, you know, the good dogs, the cute little dogs would come and kept him company, what comfort he had. That's not what he meant. He meant he was in a constant state of uncleanliness. That's what he meant. See how we put on modern filters and get scripture to say whatever we want? How do we know that? Remember what he told the Syrophoenician woman? It is not right to give the food of the children to the bingo. And no, Christ was not under a cultural, um, you know, pressure, nonsense, blah, blah. No. There's a very profound covenantal meaning associated to that. I'm not going to get into this, otherwise we won't get out tonight. Alright, the eagle. Maternal care and love. Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 11. As an eagle incites its nestling forth by hovering over its brood, so he spread his wings to receive them and bore them up on his pinions. Speaking of God's love for Israel. Sweet, uh, um, swiftness, speed. Revelation, chapter 8, verse 13. 
Then I looked again and heard an eagle flying, high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, Whoa, whoa, whoa. How many times whoa? Alright, you get the three now? Okay. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a woe. It's also associated with uncleanliness. See, you can't, you have to be careful with symbolism. You can't just run with one meaning. You really have to scout scripture to see it. Leviticus chapter 11 verse 13. Of the birds, these you shall loathe, and as lothum they shall not be eaten. The eagle, the vulture, the osprey. You will not touch those. They're unclean. Uh, it's also associated with life, youthfulness, renewal. Psalm 103 verse 5. Fills your days with good things, your youth is renewed like the eagles. It's associated also with pride and presumption. It's a very complex symbol, that of an eagle. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 49 verse 16. The terror you spread beguiled you and your presumption of heart, you that live in rocky crags that hold the heights of the hill though you build your nest high as the eagle from there I will drag you down says the Lord okay why I mean think about the eagle the eagle has a whole bunch of stuff around him right he loses his um, the eagle has a very long life and every year he loses his old um, uh, feathers and get new ones he's swift he's high so obviously there's multiple lessons associated with with an eagle the horse Strength, speed, courage, power. Also material wealth, material power, foolishness. Uh, Psalm 32 verse 9. Do not be senseless like horses or mules. With bit and, with bit and brittle that timber is curbed, else they will not come to you. Royal conquest. Uh, the, the, the king conquers on a white horse. Alright? That's why the horse is such a prized symbol that they can get away with a pale horse. Alright? The lamb. Well, you know that. Meekness, gentleness, Christ. It's also joy. Wisdom, chapter 19, verse 19. For they range about like horses and bounded about like lambs, praising you, O Lord, the deliverer. So the lamb also represents joy. But the lamb also represents deceit. Deception, Antichrist, the Lamb, which represents deceit, deception, and Antichrist. Revelation chapter 13 verse 11. Then I saw another beast come up, come, come up out of the earth. It has two horns like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. Okay? So therefore the Antichrist will look like a lamb, but will speak like a dragon. Alright? Um, the leopard watchfulness Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 6 therefore lions from the forest slay them wolves of the desert ravage them leopards keep watch round their cities why what's about a leopard a leopard can sit still for hours on end watching gazelles and antelopes and then when he moves he moves quickly so that kind of watchfulness is represented also on God's part who watches over us all the time. Swiftness, sudden action. That's why, right? Daniel chapter 7 verse 6. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 8. I'm not going to read them. The, the lion. Strength, kingship, destruction, death, courage, 
All those things we know about the lion. But the lion represents the devil. Also. 2 Timothy verse 4. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength so that though... That, that through me the proclamation might be completed and all the Gentiles might hear it and I was rescued from the lion's mouth. 1 Peter verse... Uh, the first letter of St. Peter, chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober and vigilant. Your opponent, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The locust. Fast and abstinence. You know why. But also mass destruction. Mass destruction done in an orderly way. Not in a chaotic way. Why? Proverbs Chapter 30, verse 27. Locusts, they have no king, yet they migrate all in array, in order. So when the Lord sends locusts, it isn't about chaos. It is about a deliberate, premeditated, ordered destruction. God's wrath. Revelation chapter 9, verse 3 through 4. I want to read those right now. The scorpion. Deadly danger. You know that if you put two scorpions in one place... One will kill the other. Alright? If you put a bunch of scorpions together, they'll go about killing each other. They're one of the few animals that will kill another of their kin. And if you put a scorpion and you put a ring of fire around it, you, you know, this is very... This is just hypothetical, okay? The scorpion will commit suicide. That's what a scorpion does. So, scorpions represent deadly danger, covenant, but also the scorpion is a covenantal instrument. We'll read that in Sirach, chapter 39, verse 21 through 31. In his treasury also, speaking of God, in his treasury also, kept for the proper time, are fire, hail, famine, disease, ravenous beasts, scorpions, vipers, and the avenging sword to exterminate the wicked. In doing his bidding, they rejoice. In doing his bidding, they rejoice. In their assignments, they disobey not his command. So everything in nature, including scorpions, are there to teach us about God's love. I'll take questions later because I really am, I want to try to finish. Oh, I apologize. Sirach chap, chapter 39, 29 through 31. Of course, the scorpion represents the evil one. Luke chapter 10, verse 19. Luke 10, 19. The last one I'm going to go through is Wormwood. Mm, the famous Wormwood from the book of Revelation. You, you're familiar with Wormwood? Wormwood is in the book of Revelation when a mountain is hurled into a river and it turns, it's, it, and the name of the mountain is Wormwood. And so much has been done over Wormwood because there's a city in Russia who one translated as a being Wormwood. And therefore, of course, the Russians are after us. And that's what the Book of Revelation is all about. Yeah. Not quite so. I didn't make that up, by the way. This is, this is a serious interpretation of... Anyhow. Yeah, yeah. They're related to atomic powers and all that good stuff. Okay. Well, Wormwood means bitterness and pestilence. Proverbs 5, verse 4. The lips of an adulteress drip with honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, as sharp as a two-edged sword. Uh, Jeremiah 9, 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, See now, I will give them wormwood to eat and poison to drink. In Revelation 8, verse 11. That's the famous passage. When a third angel blew his trumpet, a large star burning like a torch. That wasn't a... a, a 
It wasn't a mountain, it was a star. Burning like a torch fell from the sky. It fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The star was called Wormwood, and a third of all the water turned to Wormwood. Many people died from this water because it was made bitter. Wormwood also indicates deceit and injustice. Um, I'm really having a problem with my accent today. <laughs> wormwood, I suppose. That would be the proper way of saying it. <laughs> I'm enjoying this tonight. <laughs> yeah, wormwood. Thank you. <laughs> so, what I did tonight in a very quick fashion, because I really want to stay on schedule, is to give you a, an outline of all those symbols and to get you at least to be aware that there is so much more behind the words in scripture than meets the eye. There is so much more behind nature than meets the eye. And hopefully it will help you to look at things differently. Because God is talking to us. We have to listen. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.